sentimientos con los individuos. Join the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, Jeff Fredrick, our faculty from the Department of Biology, Kirkland, Amelia Pereira, and the Rock, Rita Hergovic, and Brian Stoll. says this, if you ask any southerner to name the best meal he ever ate, he will invariably recall something that mama or grandma had made, apples or something. If you ask a Yankee about the best meal he ever ate, he will invariably name a four-star, impossible-to-get-into restaurant, and usually not even mention Chick-fil-A. And there it is, the simplest and yet most complex definition of who we are as southerners. The other half of that equation is tied up in the reality that the foods we eat are most often grown right here in the U.S. And while on the household level, that might mean the box garden outback or the potatoes and tomatoes on the patio or the herbs in the windowsill, on the larger level, it means farming. As late as the dawn of the American Revolution, only one in five American farmers had a plow, meaning agriculture was local, personal, backbreakingly physical and critical for survival as one's ability to produce a crop, store it, and ration it was directly proportional to feeding one's family all winter long. Machinery and farming was a critical development. As late as 1830, the typical American farmer was still broadcasting seed, hay was still being cleared with a hand or stick, and bundled by a rake, and corn was harvested with hands and hoes. Cotton gins, threshing machines, mowing machines, and Cyrus McCormick's improved reaper started the pace of change. And post-Civil War, American manufacturing and engineering expanded, creating disc harrows, planters, and soon-enough milk machines, and eventually, with the 1925 Farm Model tractor, affordable mechanization with an ever-growing number of enhancements like harvesting devices and hoes. In the years since, farming has become more technical, more scientific, more sophisticated, and just as critical, though in a slightly different context. This broadcast is originating in the largest geographic county by land area in the state of North Carolina, the state with the second largest rural population of any state in the Union. Despite two hurricanes since fall of 2016, about one out of every three total acres in this county is under cultivation. Taken together, the cash receipts from farms and buildings and the equipment that produces grain and beans, broilers and hogs, and everything in between, agriculture in this county alone is worth almost $1.3 billion. In all of its parts and pieces, it's a $76 billion value-added North Carolina business. And it isn't declining. Agriculture is growing, and it's more critical than ever. In this state, it supplies 17% of the state's income and employs 17% of the state's workforce. North Carolina is around seventh nationally in farm products and leads the nation in several commodities. Last time I looked, the state ranks first in the nation in farm cash receipts for tobacco and sweet potatoes, second for turkey and hogs, and third for cucumbers and strawberries, and basically is in the top 10 for just about everything else. More to the point, we note that not only is agriculture not declining, it's actually facing a mandate for expansion and improvement. Today, the world's population sits at 7.3 billion, 
by 2050, the population of Baltimore will reach 9.7 billion. At the turn of the next century, the world will have over 11 billion people. And one thing they will all have in common is they're all going to need something to eat. Our topic today is agriculture. And joining me today are Maria Ferreira, Linda Hegebeck, Amber Roth, and Brian Schultz. Welcome, everybody. Thank Hello. you. So tell us about your research areas and how they interact with agriculture. Brian, get us started. All right. Well, my research is directly related to agriculture because I have a, a degree in agriculture. So what I look at is um, soil amendment, specifically organic soil amendment for crop production and yield. Um, I've worked on blueberries mainly, so I'm familiar with blueberry production, raspberry, and blackberry production. What I do is I look at the physical and chemical characteristics of the soil amendment and then measure plant growth. So the physical uh, characteristics might be particle size, chemical characteristics might be the pH of the amendment, uh, nutrient release, things like that. So um, the effectiveness of the amendment will depend on the soil that the plant is grown on. So you can effectively tailor your soil organic amendment to the soil and then to what crop your soil wants to produce. So the, my, my main uh, focus of research is a sustainable organic amendment called biochar. You can make biochar from anything that you can compost. It's just organic matter. It's organic carbon. But instead of composting it, when the carbon will bind with oxygen and go back into the atmosphere as CO2, if you heat this organic matter to um, a temperature of about 700 degrees Celsius, it will decompose the organic matter but you don't allow oxygen in there, so it doesn't actually combust. So that carbon is sealed in its original form. So you don't lose carbon back to the atmosphere. 700 degrees Celsius. Mm, fairly low. Kids do not like necessarily. <laughs> exactly. Um, but biochar is a, is a really new uh, innovative organic tool that's recommended by the USDA, specifically in the, uh, the eastern part of the U.S. For, for crop production. It'll stay in the soil for up to a thousand years, so it is an effective way to sequester carbon. But it's really, really great as far as nutrient retention and water retention, which are really important tools as we move forward in agriculture. So how about the rest of y'all? So I also have some degrees in agriculture, and uh, I have two small projects going on. So the first one is when growers think about uh, transition from conventional agriculture to sustainable agriculture. They are puzzled, confused, lost. What should I do? How can I start? So I'm trying to implement a plan with some uh, initial steps where the grower can answer this question. What can I do on my own farm? One step at a time, moving towards sustainability. And then the second project that I have going on with one of our students in the RISE program is, like Brian, using biochar, but in this case, I'm using strawberries. And I'm simply looking at different amounts of biochar, how will that impact all the agricultural traits of strawberries. Um, in the literature, it has been known to increase the um, resistance to a fungal disease. I'm also looking at higher yields, maybe better quality, sweeter strawberries, bigger. I don't know. There is not much literature between strawberries and biochar. And more productive with less 
we will see what we can obtain out of Fingers these. Crossed. Yes. Ava? I like to describe myself as agriculture adjacent. Uh, my research focus is in freshwater ecology. So I study lakes and rivers and streams and things like that. But the reality is, is that everything we do on the land affects these aquatic ecosystems. And so, for example, every time we put fertilizer on an agricultural field, a certain amount of that fertilizer uh, washes off or runs off into our waterways. And those excess nutrients can cause something called eutrophication, which is just a buildup of nutrients in the water. And that can lead to, in extreme cases, things like algal blooms or other negative effects on freshwater ecosystems. It can affect the algae that grow in um, the lake or the river, and then those effects can um, kind of be felt the whole way up the food chain and the whole way through the food web. So I'm primarily interested in studying those effects on aquatic ecosystems. Okay, I am the Graduate Director of Science Education here at UNCPA. Um, and my interest in um, agriculture and agricultural research is to get, uh, is to, I train science teachers and to help them think in effective ways to teach STEM to their students. Um, I'm very interested in engaging minority students and develop science identities in STEM so that maybe they would want to go into science and solve some of these problems. My specific area of research is outdoor science and the use of technologies in the outdoors, GIS, GPS, biosensors, um, and I work with bees and habitat enrichment, um, and also with the UNCP Kansas Gardens this year. We have so many rich perspectives and experiences to talk about today. Let me start off with kind of Olivia and I. Um, from where you sit, what would you identify as some of the critical issues that agriculture and research is facing in the United States right now? Okay, I can start with this. I think uh, a, really, a really big issue that we have are just our natural resources, uh, fresh water, um, arable soils, and, um, and nutrients. So um, we were just running out of enough land to farm. We used to farm the land and we depleted it. We would move on. That's just how we did in history. Now we really don't have anywhere to move to. So I think a trend that we've seen is while there might be less farms overall, there's more intensive production that are coming out of fewer farms, which is actually a good thing. And um, I think a lot of our production is going to need to be really uh, intensified this year. So we're getting a lot more out of smaller tractors. So I think that we're going to need to look on look at uh, uh, arable land, fresh water. Since 70% of the earth is covered in water, but only 3% is fresh water, and of that, only 1% is not tied up in these critical structures. So we actually have very little bit of fresh water. So you're indicating that we have to produce more. We mm -hmm. don't have a lot of additional territory to hold up the agricultural Our water sources relative to how quickly they are replenished or, um, you know, 
how quickly the water is sort of processed and cleaned up and, and that sort of stuff. Um, and so I think the figuring out ways to use water more sustainably moving forward is going to be huge, especially for regions of the country like the, the Great Plains. We're draining the aquifer underneath the Great Plains very quickly. Um, and also in areas like Southern California, where they move water over 200 miles from mm -hmm. the Colorado River to um, farms in Southern California. So coming up with, with ways to grow crops, but also use those resource bases sustainably, I think. And getting those seeds in the ground is barely even a starting point. There's so much plant biology that has to be applied to this garden. Everything from the, do we get more rain? How do we get the same amount of rain as the year before? To what are the effects of the changing natural climate? To optimizing grazing and fresh water. There's so many layers that go into not only treated, but also uh, crops. This is not an easy uh, thing that you guys are working on. <laughs> no, it's not. I think we're going to move in a lot of ways back to some of the traditional agriculture methods where we need to um, conserve a lot and create healthier soil so that we can get out of it what we need to get into it. Um, I mean, recycling in this sense is uh, something that is really important because a lot of times in our future, which we all know that goes into the water system due to desertification, it gets lost. It gets, we can't extract that back out. So the better we are at that, the better we'll be at agriculture. And this looks like a good point to talk about some kind of what's conventional or traditional agriculture, what's organic, what's sustainable, how do how do we separate those different categories? So conventional agriculture would be one in which there are greater yields but less, um, I mean, the net energy is lost. On the extreme, we will have the organic farm where it's the system that is most energy efficient, but it's under the umbrella of sustainable agriculture. So you, we can think of sustainable agriculture as an umbrella that there are different types of agriculture under that umbrella. Organic is one of them. So if we would think about what is sustainable agriculture itself, is a system where farmers are concerned about the management, the management of the soil, the water, the nutrients, and they, they aim to fulfill the needs of today's day, but don't deplete the ecosystem for future generations. So it's, it's a management system. While the organic farming, it's more concerned of using only the natural resources, no man-made uh, amendments, uh, fertilizers, herbicides, and it's more of um, a concern to enhance the biological system, the biological diversity, recycling the nutrients in the soil, which Brian said, which is to increase soil health and soil life. And I think that these systems that we talked about, conventional, sustainable, and organic, they're all just tools that farmers have to increase their production and take care of their land. We used to have a choice, more of a choice, where you could choose one of these systems. 
but now everything is becoming much more limited. So all of those systems are just kind of merging together and just trying to get a lot of the, the best production that the performance can get out of them. They're much more apt to use in sustainable practices if it's easy and it's locally reasonable to increase the production, maybe add a little organic to it, but then still incorporate some traditional practices as well. And there's the reality that farmers are also business people, right? So in the end, they have to produce a quantity of product they can sell to a market that will net them more than what they would have cost to produce it. So um, are there farms that might have, uh, oh, of course, a large amount of product placement acres, both conventional, uh, both sustainable and organic processes all on the same Definitely. property? They're usually, they're often, like a farmer is going to do what, what increases the yield. So they may use a sustainable or organic practice and incorporate it into their whole farming practice. And then some farmers will have a certain part of their field that's just dedicated to organic and another one that's just dedicated to conventional because they're supplying two different markets and the value of those crops to where they produce um, will just differ. So some people are going to buy just because they're organically produced. But there are plenty of things that just aren't feasible to produce organically as well. You'll get a variety. And in the middle of all of that, there's also the challenges that are looking at the weather, which is a little ever imagined. We're experiencing a little of that in Southeast North Carolina in particular. Um, but market pressures um, in different regions and state tariffs that affect farmers on the local level and those that are less predictable where do you see the trend going? Is the trend whatever works best for my farm, or is the trend to go in a direction of more organic production? Well, the average farmer in the United States is 55 years old. So uh, when we look at uh, the United States and farm and farm systems, of course, the goal is going to be to get young farmers and support young farmers coming into uh, the business of growing food. And as we know, many young farmers so are dedicated individuals to farming, not only to make a profit, but also to make a difference in the world that they live in. So what we, what, what we can think about when we think about agriculture is reimagining agriculture and reaching forward to looking at more regenerative practices in agriculture so that we can reduce our climate change or our carbon footprint, but also feed the entire world. Um, many people believe, and you can um, get the actual numbers, there actually is enough food in the world now to feed everybody, even 11 billion people. <laughs> so it's not necessarily our knowledge of food, how we grow food, that's the issue, but it is more these bigger things that we need to think about, like supply chains, food waste, and how we transport the food around um, the world. So these are the big questions for agriculture looking in into the future. This is Chancellor Robin Cummings, and I want to thank you for listening to 30 Brave Minutes. Our faculty and students provide expertise, energy, and passion driving our region forward. Our commitment to Southeastern North Carolina has never been stronger through our teaching, our research, and our community outreach. I want to encourage you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. 
You can donate online at uncp.edu slash give. Thanks again for listening. Now back to more 30 Brave Minutes. You're listening to 30 Brave Minutes, the broadcast service for the College of Arts and Sciences at UNC Pembroke. I'm Jeff Frederick, and we're talking agriculture today. And our panel includes Maria Pereira, Amber Ross, Brian Schneller, and Rita Hagerman. So let's look at a couple of large issues and how they fit together as presidents. What about plant genetics? What about water quality? What about other factors that are impacting agricultural realities and maybe even local farmers? I would like to speak about the genetics portion as uh, we need to concentrate on our crops and look for genetic diversity. And when we look at the genetic diversity of our crops, we plant breeders will look at ways to increase the crop yields, to reduce the costs, and of course to make these plants more drought resistant and disease resistant. So if we can do that, then perhaps we can go by having less arable land and higher yields. Even though Dr. Hagvik just mentioned we produce enough food to feed 11 billion people, um, there is a notion in the world that people are starving and there is not enough food. So, Amber, I mean, I'm interested in some water uh, issues as well and how they go. You, you talked earlier about runoff and uh, a variety of other factors that could degrade fresh water quality. Can that be repaired? How do you take a body of fresh water and improve some of the analysis that you're seeing that says we've got to make some changes here? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question and one that we haven't really figured out the answer to yet, I don't think. Brian alluded to this a few minutes ago, but essentially once all of those nutrients run off into a body of water, um, a lot of them end up just settling down to the bottom. They end up in the sediment at the bottom of a lake or a stream or something. And so it, they end up being these huge pools of nutrients that are essentially now unavailable because we haven't really figured out a way to get them back. Um, you can, uh, because mixed in with all of that is anything else that ends up in the lake and the river, um, potentially other contaminants or pollutants, and how do you separate all of those things out? Uh, we don't really know. So in terms of reversing eutrophication, which is the term that we use, we that's a big area of interest, definitely. It's a concern, but I don't think it's something that we've really figured out how to do yet. I mean, it's whatever the plan ends up being, it's probably going to be very expensive and potentially time-consuming, and the question of how much return we will actually get, not really yet an answer. So science has gotten to the point where we can identify when it's happening, mm -hmm. but we're not necessarily yet clear on how to reverse it. Correct. Now, there is also quite a bit of research um, that's ongoing, some really interesting uh, research um, using plants and different types of plants to actually uh, clean the water. So plants themselves, and if we use the ecosystem services that are already in place in our environment, we can use that then to help address some of these issues. And, and uh, uh, the way that water becomes clean is it filters through the soil and organic matter. It pulls out all your herbicides, the microbes eat those, it makes its way down to the aquifer, and we have wonderful drinkable water. 
but so much of that water is not passing through our soil profiles anymore. It's hitting the soil loam and running directly off, and that's a lot of our management practices for agriculture. Um, and then the, the cost for cleaning up water is, is like reverse osmosis. They do a lot of this in um, Saudi Arabia and the Middle East, and they're, they're very wonderful at it, but it is a really uh, energy-intensive process that we it would be better to avoid than try to fix. So one thing that is potentially changing in the South and North Carolina agricultural landscape is the introduction of hemp. <coughs> hemp has industrial, particularly um, for some people medicinal, and a variety of other consumer potential applications. It's also a pretty unregulated environment now, although it we do know that hemp grows pretty good in soil where tobacco used to grow, and we have a pretty fair amount of that. What are your thoughts on hemp moving forward and what the next developments would be there? So I would like to speak of the hemp cultivar, or should I say subspecies, versus the high crop or high, what is the phrase? THC. Well, the, the crop that induces psychotic effects, mm -hmm. which is marijuana, right? So both of them, amazingly enough, are from the same family and the same genus, which is cannabis, and what they are are different subspecies. They, they both produce the famous CBD oil, which has um, very good uh, nutritional effects, uh, health, you know, it's good for health, um, and a myriad of things. The difference is on the THC content. So hemp um, has uh, low THC content, no more than the 0.3%, while marijuana can go anywhere from 5 to 30%. But you can obtain oil from both and have good effect effects and good uses from both. Now, hemp itself can be grown in almost any soil, any climate. Uh, it doesn't deplete the soil very much. It does not require a lot of water. And the plants are excellent both for fiber, for seed consumption, while marijuana, which is a different subspecies, it needs a lot of attention to pH, water, nutrients. It needs a lot of space because they are mainly grown for their leaves. So you need a lot of area around. The environment has to be just perfect to produce that uh, amount of oil with a THC component. Yes, I, I think that um, you're right. One of the biggest challenges is making sure you grow hemp in uh, below the limit of THC, which I'm still not sure how they arrive at that actual concentration or what <laughs> makes that the, the perfect number. But I think that's just going to be a result of breeding, and they'll get that figured out. Mm -hmm. It's just it's a new industry. Um, but I think it's going to depend for North Carolina how uh, the um, what other crops they want to grow here, like how much space they have, and then um, – economically the world market you know who else is supplying it is it even feasible for us to do and does it grow in our in our in our soil type uh, you know we have a pretty acidic soil here so i know that it, it can grow fine but uh it usually likes something more four to seven ph so it's about there that's taking a little bit closer to a five point five to six but 
there is a little bit of a different there. And so that's really just tried and true and you figure out is a, is a lot to investigate, which is a great opportunity. So um, let's provide everybody some good cocktail party information. What's a simple truth about something related to soil or water or feed or pest or farming that most folks don't necessarily understand, but they should? Um, well, as far as the soil goes, um, it is about 45% minerals, 5% um, organic matter, and the rest of it is pore space. So half of it is really pore space. So that's going to allow water to drain. So it's, if it's wet, it's going to be all the pores are full of water. If it's dry, it's all going to be full of air. So uh, I think a lot of people don't see soil as 50% of it as, as empty. And that just uh, it just really goes to show about how important compaction is when we drive over it, we walk over it, how much we can change the soil. Well, one out of every three bites that everybody eats every day is due to a pollinator, most likely a bee. <laughs> so everybody plant wildflowers, many different kinds, uh, at many different heights, the more the better, and the more different heights the better because without bees, we won't have, and pollinators, we may not have a whole lot of agriculture to be able to grow. I noted recently that somebody produced a document where they called the bee the most important species on the yep. planet. And yep. What about the rest of you? So in terms of water quality, I think the simple truth I would say is that lakes and rivers, they we, we think of them as being the lowest point in the landscape, right? right? That's where everything drains to. And it's just really important to keep in mind that everything that goes on the landscape could potentially end up in a body of water. And that has implications for, like we said, for agriculture, but even drinking water quality, recreational water quality, as you move forward with agriculture and with everything, just keeping in mind um, that ev basically everything we do on the landscape can have an impact on our water resources. And I would like to add for our um, in for the individuals that are listening to us, one uh, thing that we all need to try to do is never to leave the soil bare because that will lead to erosion. And so if uh, farmers would use cover crops when they're not planting for the cash crop and also um, having a mindset of not growing the same crop year after year after year in the same field because that if you do that practice, you allow the pests and the disease to build up on that soil. So basically, next year you're starting your crop again on an infested field. So keep in mind that crops need to be rotated from one field to another, even if the farmer is completely conventional. At least these two practices of moving the crops in the fields and covering the field at all times. That was, those are critically important. So um, UNCP launched uh, its own agriculture program uh, last August um, within the biology department, and everyone is very excited about that. What are some interesting elements of that program that might interest our, our li listeners? Well, I can speak from, from the plant side of the uh, agriculture. Um, we're doing some really interesting projects and classes. One of those is techniques in horticulture. Um, this is really open to all the students in, on campus. So 
you do not need a prerequisite to take this class. This class is to encourage people to grow plants, to learn how to garden, help to feed themselves. We do a lot of interesting um, techniques in there, such as grafting, asexual production, um, direct sows. And we're also, um, we're also uh, have just put together a really nice agriculture club. So these stu- there's a lot of students that are interested in agriculture um, but may not want to declare it as their major. So we have ha- we've seen a really big response from students at UNCP who are interested in growing plant and in agriculture and are really interested in seeding production. And there's lots of great opportunities for students to get involved in the campus garden and apiary. We do outreach programs. Um, we also do research. Um, we communicate to others about how they can do things for themselves um, at home. We have student STEM programs that the students can get involved in, and the, some of the students in the ag program help and assist uh, with those uh, types of activities. So they seem to really enjoy the educational communication as well as the research uh, piece of the program. And since agriculture is global, we're working on connecting our students globally so they can look at ag from a global perspective and some of the research practices and ag practices that we can learn about in other parts of the world and bring back right here to the southeastern part of North Carolina. I'm proud to be in this small collection of deans who have put on the bee suit and done some actual work in the apiary. Yes, and uh, from my perspective, I am so excited because due to a small grant coming from the dean's office, we were able to, quote-unquote, infiltrate ourselves into the high schools and uh, buying them some pots and soil and seeds. We have uh, high... Containers, you mean. You weren't buying them pots. Yes. (laughs) Wing containers. No, not that part. We have these students all excited growing plants. And uh, I believe that is when the students look at the seed and later it's a green plant. And if they don't take care of it, this plant will die. I have noticed they start calling these plants my babies. And so I can see now that all the students surrounding our campus will now have an opportunity to follow that passion of being around plants and growing plants. They don't bleed. It's so much more pleasant to deal with. And uh, I am sure they will end up here with us, with UNCP, Ag Program. And for me, I think as a because of my background as a field ecologist, somebody who's outside a lot, I get really excited and passionate about getting students out of the classroom and into kind of out into nature or out into the world, so to speak. And so I'm really excited for the potential for these ag classes to get students in the greenhouse, in the garden, maybe out working with local farmers. Uh, We're in the process of hiring someone to teach some animal science classes. So there's definitely potential there to get students putting their hands on some cows or some goats or, you know, uh, anything like that. And really learning firsthand some of these skills and those things that are going to be really important to them in their careers. So I'm really excited about that aspect. <coughs> Wonderful. This has been a great fun. Thank you all for joining uh, us today to talk about agriculture and farming. Uh, join us again next time for another edition of Great Thank you.
Today's podcast was edited by Richard Gay and transcribed by Janet Gentis. Theme music created by Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go Braves! Good job, everybody!